Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss our favorite comic books and graphic novels. And on weeks like this, we talk with our favorite comic creators. I am one of your co-hosts, Dallas. I'm and I'm supposed to just keep going like nothing just happened. Like nothing, okay. nothing happened. Nothing happened off camera. Okay, fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> what do, what do we have? Who do we have in the studio today, Dallas? Yeah, so in about five minutes, you're going to hear us talk with legendary cartoonist Jeff Smith. He is the creator of Bone, Razzle, and most recently Tukey. Uh Jeff is probably the biggest deal we've had on the show so far. <laughs> Like we've we've talked to some cool people, but never I knew him when I was six years old kind of people. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. I've just oh, I'm trying not to freak out about it, but <laughs> he's such a huge name. He's been such a supportive person um, for the show online. I when I remember when you texted me that he followed you. I'm like, oh, that's so crazy. I didn't even know he had a Twitter. I went to go follow him and I found he was already following me too. I'm like, oh, he's a sneaky one. <laughs> okay, cool. He is. He's someone who just genuinely loves comic mm-hmm. books and he yeah. loves art and he loves interacting with people. Like if I had one word to describe interacting with Jeff Smith, it's just love. You feel it pouring out at all oh, yeah. times. And Jeff I, Smith. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, I feel like it comes through in his comic books. Like you oh, feel yeah. like you're getting this loving warm hug when you read uh, an issue of Bone and mm-hmm. a chapter of Tukey, a chapter of Rassel. It's so hard not to to feel that. And I'm so shocked at myself that I haven't tried reading the um, Shazam, the um, the Monster Society book that he did yet. It because is it good. just is it okay? I know when you're telling me a DC book is good that it's actually good, and I'm because <laughs> I tell you a DC book is good is like yeah, it's mid. I just have a fond nostalgia for it. <laughs> it's very fun. You very much can tell like oh, this is the guy who did Bone, but you can also tell much like when you're reading Multiversity, like the creator of this loves Captain Marvel and who he is, and it's such a fun book. <sighs> It, I will check it out soon, but the book we checked out for this one, I want to talk about for just a minute, because if you haven't read it yet, listener, the book Tukey, the first two volumes are out right now, the first two volumes out of hopefully six, it is everything that you loved about Bone wrapped up in a prehistoric burrito, and it is so delicious in every way, shape, and form, and I'm not just saying that because I'm the world's second biggest paleontology nerd, and... um. Don't take it from me. Take it from the first biggest paleontology nerd. Dallas, tell him what you thought about this book. Hello, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm here to ruin your day. I'm going to make that my ringtone. <laughs> Every time I call, hello, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's not even a Neil deGrasse Tyson voice. It's just what I did. Um, <laughs> I, I hold up Bone as... <coughs> one of my favorite comics of all time. I think it is a pillar of what comic booking can be. And I'm not being hyperbolic when I say I like Tukey better. I have been thinking about Tukey since I read it. I immediately put it at the very top of my best of 2022 list mm-hmm. uh, for comic books. It, If you want a vibe, picture this. Picture... Yojimbo, 
But instead of wandering around 20th century, 19th century, sorry, Japan, he's wandering around 2 million BC in Africa, vibing with all kinds of hominids. Mm -hmm. It's a story about found family. It's a story about what makes us human. And it has some of the best cartooning I think I've ever seen Jeff Smith do. Oh, yeah. This is some of the best just black and white work I've ever seen in a comic book. It is stellar. And the um, the little splash in the back of the second book with Tuki and the um, uh, the saber-toothed cat. Mm-hmm. I want it on my wall. I need it on my wall, actually. Thank you very much. Um, need it more than air itself. It is gorgeous. This is everything I wanted to read when I was like eight years old and looking for a good prehistoric comic. This is this is it. This is the book. And yes, something I don't want to to spoil too much of the conversation to come. But something that Jeff touches on is that this is a very unexplored era for storytelling. We have a lot of like faux Mesozoic where people like it's the Jurassic, but also cave people are there. And like, well, that is fun. I love Kendi Tarkovsky's primal, but like that's not how things really were. (laughs) And so. Tapping into 2 million BC to tell a story about a Homo erectus is something that tickles all the parts of my brain. And I'm Mm -hmm. so glad that a talent like Jeff Smith, someone who has the storytelling chops to do it right, has the heart to do it in the most loving, kind, empathetic, include everyone in your story kind of way. I couldn't dream up a better book than this. Mm Mm-hmm. I couldn't have said it better myself. And frankly, I don't think I need to because Jeff Smith's going to sum it up pretty perfectly for us in just a second. All right. So stay tuned for our conversation and we'll be back with you after the conversation to close it up. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Comics Collective Podcast, the weekly show where we talk about a specific comic or graphic novel, and sometimes we do something really, really special. Like today, I'm one of your co-hosts, Anne. And I'm Dallas. And we are joined today by the absolutely phenomenal, spectacular, awesome, every other great word in the English language, um, Jeff Smith. And I am just, (laughs) I'm, I'm... Amazed because I've been, I've seen your name since I was a teenager. I used to work at a library and I would show um, graphic novels all the time. And Bone passed through my hands more than maybe any other comic that I was putting on those shelves. Everyone loved that book so, so much. And it was just, I, I'm so sad that it took me so long to see what all the fuss is about because it was definitely one of my, the highlights of just being on the show is going through that entire series and just being here and being able to talk to you today. Absolutely phenomenal. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I was looking forward to it. My, my assistant Kathleen is, is texting me saying, are you on? Are you on? So, 
I, I'm All not right. going to tell. I'm, gonna her, I'm just going to let her worry about it. <laughs> that's not true. I'm going to. I'm going to tell her. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. So for the listeners at home, we obviously are huge fans of mm-hmm. Bone. We've covered it on the show, but today we are here to talk about Jeff's new work, Tuki which is two volumes that are out right now. Tukey Fight for Family did just come out. We've had the chance to read it. And I mean, spoiler alert, we love it. We think you should go pick it up for sure. Um, so Jeff, going from something like Bone into Razzle into Tukey, it's clear that you're a big fan of genre fiction, right? Like each of those have a strong genre to them. What... What is it that draws you to telling that kind of story? Well, I think initially it was just because that's what I liked to read from the time I was a, a kid. I mean, I remember being in middle school and reading, you know, Conan and Tarzan on the bus, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so I, I just always was into it. And then as I got older uh, and I started to write, I just also, again, found that that was, that's what attracted me. That's what interested me was that kind of fantasy, uh, epics. Uh, I mean, even, even, even more straight books like the Iliad and the Odyssey or Moby Dick had heavy, heavy doses of fantasy in them. I mean, mm-hmm. Moby Dick was just Jaws. I mean, it was a rogue monster, you know, that had intelligence. And the same with the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey where, I mean, the, they're supposedly about a real war and real heroes and real, you know, Spartans and Athenians and all that. But then, meantime, the gods are just fucking with them the whole time. <laughs> the whole time, the gods are all up there going, "I'm just like a puppeteer messing with them." <laughs> well, I, I've always, I've always been driven toward that level of, uh, I, I, I guess you could call it fantasy, or you could just call it mythology, or whatever. But that, that element of imagination is just where I like to live. I love that. What do you feel like you gain the most from sprinkling in bits of fantasy into your story? I think it's, it's representative of what we can't see. I mean, all around us is, is we, we can't see it, whether it's particles, <laughs> you know, if it's physics or if it's mystical, if it's, you know, religious spiritual beliefs there's there's we can't see everything but we know it's there and so to me that's what uh the dreaming in bone represents it's what the dragons represent they're dragons in the earth uh in rassel it's it is it's literally uh particle physics and um uh, and parallel universes are all these things we we can't see but they're all around us so i think i think that's kind of what i that's what's interesting to me I guess that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. Some, um, what is that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And I have to ask, just speaking on that, that fantasy aspect, what do you think the comics as a medium allow you to do in that genre that no other medium could, because this is the, the genre you feel most comfortable in, I'm assuming. And it's just, you've done some incredible things. So why, why comics? It's, I'm not. I'm not sure that I think that comics is actually better for fantasy or uh, mm-hmm. any particular genre, um, but it's that that's the art that I figured out I can do. Mm-hmm. I can 
I once I get into doing it, I know how to make the panels move and come alive. Um, I I might not. I don't think I would be as good of a prose writer. You know, uh, I don't. I might be able to, but I, my few attempts have not come to life like I know I can do in comics. So I, I just think it's. I I just found the. I just found my art form, but I, I had a thought right in the middle there. I originally wanted to do comic strips like Peanuts um, or Dick Tracy or something, mm-hmm. and. I tried really hard and I was actually uh, trying to sell Bone as a comic strip for the newspaper right around the same time that uh, Bill Watterson was going around trying to sell Calvin and Hobbes. Bill sold it. I was unable to sell. No one was interested in my mixture of uh, little Bugs Bunny, Karl Marx characters with you know epic fantasy and humans and all that stuff. Everybody was just like, what is this? So I, I was kind of forced to give up my dream of a comic strip and go into comic books. Cause around that same time I discovered, um, you know, the independent marketplace, uh, the comic, uh, comic book shops. I saw Cerebus, I saw love and rockets, hate eight ball, the tick. I saw all these books and I was like, Hey, I maybe I could see that these people were really, really talented and were really having fun. And I thought maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe I'll try it as a comic book. And, when I, the very first issue of Bone, my eyes were open. I was like, this, this is my medium. This is it. Instead of forcing a joke into four little squares, I could take four pages. I could take two and a half pages. It didn't matter. I could, I, I, I just, it, I fit. I fit the comic book. And I was, I never looked back. I like that a lot. I like the idea of the freedom of the format of Mm -hmm. comics, that it gives you as much or as little space as you think is right. And so when I ordered my copies of Tukey, when they arrived, I was surprised that it was more of a horizontal book that I could open up and lay down on the bed while I read it. Uh, What do you think? I'm sorry. Is this visual? I mean, I'm showing you. I don't know if this word's just on the... This is just audio, but we'll post okay. some screen grabs from it for sure. All right. All right. Um, I excuse me. Please continue. No, you're good. I, I guess I'm wondering what do you feel like you gained from flipping Tuki on its axis like this, as far as format goes. Well, the initial decision was to fit the computer screen, because I started Tuki in 2014 uh, as a web comic, and I did it for. A little over a year, I, you know, just like over at like 13 months or something. Um, and I, I did maybe about 75 uh, things so or pages. And I just I wanted them to fit, you know, the landscape of a computer screen. And then when I decided to stop because I, real, I, I realized I had jumped into the story a little prematurely. It wasn't quite as smooth as I wanted it to be. When I came back to it, uh, I had I had seventy five pages, uh, and that I was like, I'm not going to redraw these. I mean, I really did. I really did try. I did actually publish it as a comic book, the the, the web comic itself, okay. and it because it was landscaped, you had to you had to like read it like a calendar. Interesting. Uh, yeah, which I thought was not a big deal, but apparently a lot of people really didn't like that. Hmm. Um, what I didn't like is that I didn't 
the, the, it was a real choppy experience, the way I had thrown a page up maybe one or two a week. And the, it just wasn't smooth the way I, I like a story to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I set it aside. And when I came back, like I said, I had like 75 pages that were, I, I drew them really, really pretty good. And I didn't want to redraw them uh, because I wasn't sure I'd get them that good again. So I just said, well, I'm stuck with this. Then kind of going into what you were asking, then I discovered what this, you know, this pull this thing open and it's, you know, it's huge. These books are printed. Uh, I'm amazed at how good the, the printing job was. I mean, they mm-hmm. lay flat. They don't, they're sewn. So they don't, the spine doesn't crack. Um, I mean, I'm sure if you kicked it around like a gorilla, you could probably do some damage. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but don't do that. Um, but then I, I kind of, then I began to explore the space that I, I suddenly had. And, you know, I've been to this part of Africa. It's very wide. It is a wide, it's a big sky. And I was able to kind of start to put that kind of uh, landscaping in there. Um, literal landscape, not the shape of the panels and stuff. Oh, I like that a lot. So in in the back matter of this book, you share your experience that led to sort of this idea you had for Tuki. Do you want to maybe relay that a little bit for our listeners that haven't had the chance to read it? Was a, are you referring to like the trip to Africa? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, t- to preface that, when I was 14 in 1974, Lucy was found, the famous three million year old fossil of a, a small female that had features that were, some of their features were apes and some of it were human. So basically, in 1974, they found the missing link. Uh, and it was big, big news. I mean, people like to say that nobody's ever found the missing link, but they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, this, um, it was like, it was, there was television specials about it. It was Life Magazine had cover stories about it. I was hooked. It was a fascinating discovery. Um, and I, and I was been, I've been fascinated by human evolution ever since. So, in fact, when we went to uh, East Africa, to the, to, to the parks, uh, Vijay and I and some cartoonist friends of ours, we visited Olduvai Gorge, which is not where Lucy was found, but where uh, another very famous and very old uh, hominid fossil was found, Paranthropus Boise, I think it was, uh, by the Leakeys. And we went, we went to the site. And I got chills. I mean, this, this, this is on this spot. Millions of years of our ancestors went back right here. Each stage of evolution was right here, had spent time here um, making tools, uh, living, loving. And I had a, a vision that day that I talk about in Tuki that when I was standing right at where the marker is, where it says this is where the skull of uh, Paranthropus Boise was found. And there was kind of look up the wall of the little ravine there and I can see some trees up above it. And I remember very distinctly kind of seeing all our, all our different kinds of ancestors kind of walking around almost as like as if they were in a marketplace, maybe, you know, uh, but they were all up there. And I was really moved by that vision. <clears throat> and it was years later, I did start taking pictures of Africa after that. I don't know why, except somehow in the back of my mind, I kind of knew 
this is so cool. I might want to make a comic out of this someday, but I had no idea how or why or what. And that came in the two, in like 2010 or so. I always read books about evolution. And I try to stay up on the latest theories. Mm-hmm. Um, and the latest theory that was really caught my eye uh, is that we started controlling and eating cooked food about 2 million years ago. Now, when I was in high school, that was, that number was more around the 300,000 years ago, Mark, mm-hmm. um, when we were clearly into Europe, probably, it was probably kind of racist driven kind of thinking, mm-hmm. but, uh, the, they, they, they know it was 2 million years ago because of the fossils and the shapes of our bodies. We no longer had to have these, these, uh, uh, huge amounts of uh, intestines in order to process raw meat or twigs and nuts and berries and stuff. We started cooking our food and we could digest it much easier. And a lot more blood could be spent with our brains. So what was the other thing that's interesting about 2 million years ago, besides that's when we started using fire, is that these other species, Australopithecus uh, africanus, or Afarensis, that's the Lucy species. They're still around at that point. They're still around. And but but we're our immediate ancestor is Homo erectus. That's 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 the one that's a direct line. You can go before that, it gets a little scattershot. But there was Homo habilis, there was there was multiple hominids were around at the same time. But only our direct line started using fire. And we have overlapped with other humans before before and most recently with neanderthals in europe right we've all heard about that mm-hmm. well the difference between neanderthals and and two million years ago is that the two million years ago reality actually matched that vision i had in in the gorge of multiple human species maybe intermingling and i was like okay well that's it i'm that's the story i'm going to start trying to figure out Oh, I love okay, that. Okay, breathe now. <laughs> no, I, got no, it's, my, I got it out of my system. I always no. believe it's going to be too pedantic. No, you're talking no, to two really big paleontology nerds. Exactly. Oh, the, sweet. The oh. other thing we love, other than comics, is paleontology and anthropology. I I oh, majored in archaeology. I, I'm all no, about this kind of stuff. You know who the leakies are. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Little do the listeners at home know, we've hijacked this this podcast. <laughs> we don't talk about comics anymore. This is prehistory. You're about <laughs> to learn today. <laughs> and speaking of learn, how much research did you have to to put into this book? Because it's not often we get like a prehistorical fiction like this that's so recent in a time that's like like we see plenty of books that take place in like the Mesozoic with the dinosaurs. This is something that's so recent and so you know like personal to our own histories and to how we came to be. So how did that come about? How did you go about creating this world? What parts come from reality? What parts come from fantasy? Well, I, I tried to keep the the setting as real as possible. And I did a lot of research. I did um, a one, one really handy resource for me was uh, William Stout uh, paints uh, these murals of prehistoric scenes, and he'll, he, I, I bought a book from him in San Diego, 
can't even remember how many years ago. But I was I could look through it, and he worked with all these uh, people in the museum. So he had all the he would like here's a painting of this Zola, this Mezzozola, right? All this, uh, all these uh, different times, and he had all the right plants. So I was able to like locate which animals were alive at that time, um, and then. You know, I, I was thinking this might be, I, it could also be like the first, you know, the first canines. So I, that, I, would, I did a whole bunch of Googling about that. And it was actually really difficult for me to figure out that, no, that did not happen back. That was way later, way, 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 way later. That, uh, I mean, wolves hardly, they, wolves existed, but mm-hmm. not dogs of any kind. Yeah. I don't even know if wolves existed. Yeah, they did. Yes, they did. Wolves did exist back mm-hmm. then. Uh, Sabretooth. Which is my favorite of the animals there back there. Um, in the second book, one of the one of the very first pages has these like stubby-necked giraffes. That's what they looked like two million years ago. So yeah, I mean, I was I, I went down a lot of rabbit holes. I did a ton of research. Um, I read a lot of books. Um, yeah, I, I just a lot of research went into it. Then the fantasy part was also based a little bit on some research because I, I, I didn't want to actually use any modern or any, mo- when I say modern, I'm talking about like the last 2000 years, mm-hmm. uh, mythology, I don't want to use any real mythology, but I did read a lot of it so that when I do bring up uh, my fantasy elements, they might have hints or flavors of that. I like that. I You talked at the beginning of this about wanting to have a discussion about what we can't see. And that's clearly been something that's been on humanity's mind. As as soon as we started having thoughts, we started thinking about what we couldn't see, what we could feel but not quite perceive. And yeah. so I, I do think it comes across really authentically. And I like that a lot. Thank you. Um, I guess my... really the through line between all my projects, with Bone and Rassel and, and Tukey. And even the Shazam book I did, uh, one of the reasons I got into it was, well, Talking Tigers was pretty cool. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but the Rock of Eternity, I mean, that's that that fits right into that little car- that, that category. Uh, Absolutely. I really like that. Um, so you talk about having these 75 pages of existing artwork that you reuse and retool a little bit going into the creation of these Tukey graphic novels. What do you... F- do you feel like you saw yourself grow as an artist between when you were originally doing these drawings and then where you're at now working on Tukey? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Um, I, I did more than retool it. It's almost, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's practically a brand new book. It's even though some of the artwork is in there and I can tell you guys looked at the back matter. You can see, I really, tore it apart and put it back together Mm -hmm. and it's pretty different um i also uh was much more sensitive about um not wanting i didn't i wanted to be careful about you know how i'm portraying africans yeah i did have some friends say you know it's a little dodgy um primitive people they have modern dialect so uh a lot of i put a lot of energy into making sure that the tableau, the setting was very clear. This is not happening in Africa right now. Um, I have a lot of cartoonist friends that I showed this to, uh, experts, uh, about half of them were black. And they, they helped me a great deal. 
um, all my cartoonist friends did. And for example, one of the things I changed was when Tukey first meets the old kind of prophet, the old crazy homo habilis guy, mm -hmm. uh, he, the homo guy uses the term spirit world and spirit animals. This is in the web comic. It's not in the book. And, uh, Spike Trotman, who does the Iron Circus comics, mm -hmm. uh, she was very helpful. She like read the whole thing and she said, there's, you don't need to worry. This is all fine. Everything in here is fine. And, and she was talking about it being black. Uh, she said, but you really need to be careful about tropes because, and, and she pointed out spirit animals, spirit world is, uh, it's a trope and it's usually associated with brown or black skinned people. And it represents like a lower rung of civilization or something like that. And I, as soon as she said that to me, I was like, obviously that is such an obvious trope. How did I not see that? So, um, so I was, I did a lot of work and this is, I'm saying this because this was a lot of growth for me, uh, to, to take the time to really make sure that I wasn't, you know, doing, I, I want to stick it to the, I want to stick to the story and not spend any time worrying about, um, stereotypes or tropes. Yeah. And I, I feel like you can feel that care and that love coming through on the page. That's, mm -hmm. that's really admirable that that's part of the process here. I like that. Um, I think it it also just shows in your your care for portraying these characters as people, right? You mm -hmm. look and there are multiple kinds of hominids interacting here in this story, but they all have distinct personalities. They all have distinct things they're bringing to the story. And it speaks to this, like the power of collaboration. Mm. Do you feel like one of your central themes in Tuki was this idea of collaboration across the board yeah um well i kind of wanted tukey tukey kind of represents the future direction so like uh, that's what the little kids start emulating like how he carries things uh mm -hmm. even the old even the old man is he's kind of starting to follow him and starting to not mind the fire so much there's some benefits to it um i Sorry, I had a whole bunch of thoughts through my mind while you were asking that question. And one of them I would kind of went back to what Anne was asking about was the time periods. Great. The large scales of time. Yeah, I mean, at the time, even two million years ago, dinosaurs had been extinct for over 60 million years at that point. So, yeah, in that sense, compared to dinosaurs, two million years ago is much closer to us. But two million years ago is a big big um, jump in time and where was I going with that? Uh, sorry, I'm getting mixed up. Um, oh, I guess, I guess it's just that there's really, I've never, there's never been a story in this particular time period. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was the movie quest for fire, which has multiple, you know, it has like some different species together, but it's all scientifically inaccurate. I mean, maybe it was close when the book was originally written, but it's completely wrong. Okay, now I'm starting to remember. I'm starting to get my mind back on track of what you're asking. So yeah, so they 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 do act like people. Uh, in the movie Quest for Fire, they all act. You know, they're all still kind of walking like Planet of the Apes. You know, and they're ooh, mm -hmm. ooh, ooh. well, I, I the, the movie's supposed to take place like 80 million years ago. 
or 80,000 years ago. There's, there's no way we were still walking around like, ooh, ooh, ooh. no, not, not 80 million years ago. We were definitely starting to be, uh, we probably didn't wear a lot of clothing still, but we, but we were way beyond the, you know, those simian possibilities. At least that's what I've read. Mm-hmm. And so 2 million years ago, I, this is, this is virgin story territory territory. There's, I don't, I couldn't find anything in any medium that deals with this moment. I like that. And I think it's really, really cool. This group of characters that you brought together from these different species of human. And it reminds me a lot of what you did in bone, where you bring together a bunch of different characters into this one little motley crew, this one little group that goes on this adventure and the sort of themes of like found family and, um, the bonds that friendship can create. And I'm curious, just like where they're at right now, where Tukey book two ends, what more, just looking forward a little bit, I'm just curious, um, are we going to see any more additions to that group as we go forward? Or is this kind of like the set group that we're with for a the, while? This is probably the core, mm-hmm. but there's more. I, there's, okay. There's more, more gods coming too. <laughs> I'm so excited with the fantasy elements. I'm so, so ready. Um, so, um, so making them behave yeah. a little bit more like humans mm-hmm. is basically comes from my, um, my understanding is that they just, the scientists keep pushing things further and further back. Like right. you mentioned fire. Uh, when I was in high school, they thought fire had only been discovered you know, a few hundred thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Now they're thinking it's 2 million. Everything they keep pushing back. They're, Scientists that don't believe uh, Homo erectus could speak, and yet they've looked at they've looked at the they've done casts of the insides of their skulls, and they, they can see the larynx at the uh, the voice box at the bottom of the skull is actually long enough to modulate sound. And mm-hmm. on the inside, there's a Broca's area, which is one of the major speech centers. Mm-hmm. So whether or not scientists, I mean, whether or not they could talk like us, I don't know. But they had the equipment, which was enough to give me permission to fictionalize uh, their ability to speak to each other. Now, now Doc wouldn't have been able to speak to him, but that's why I I gave him like whatever that peyote he's he's (laughs) he's buffing around. (laughs) I loved I loved the moment when he dropped it in the fire, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, why are we all talking so well? He's like, oh, I just took the liberty of yeah. getting to the part where we could all talk to each other. Yeah. Let's speed this up. <laughs> I, I really like that. Um, you have such distinct characters across your work mm-hmm. and distinct personalities. What do you feel like goes into the creation of a memorable character like Phone Bone or Tukey or the Prophet in to hear even razzle well i i think mostly it's uh you know they're all they're they are kind of stereotypical characters in some ways but they you've got to fill them out with uh just elements or sides of your personality mm-hmm. um i've i've always thought that about peanuts clearly lucy is a part of charles schultz's you know personality as much as snoopy uh, and I actually got to meet uh, Sparky and in in, we've had a few years where I would have dinner with him and stuff. And he is, I mean, his creative side is Snoopy and he does have kind of a mm-hmm. cracky side if you cross him. He's got a Lucy in him. 
Um, but really, he's Charlie Brown and he's Lion. He is, he's all those characters. And I feel like I was that with with uh, Phone Bone, Phony Bone, and Smiley Bone, uh, as well as Thorn and Grandma Ben. Uh, Thorn, Thorn is the probably the most adult uh, part of my character. Um, and of course, Phony is that little that little selfish side you, you have every now and then, mm-hmm. your little ego. So I, I think that that informs and fills out the different characters. I wonder if, you know, I went, I did the found family that you mentioned in in mm-hmm. Bone, and I obviously I really love that um, that that kind of a story. And I did, I, and I'm back to that with Tukey. I didn't do that with Russell. Very intentionally, I wanted to do a loner story. I wanted to do uh, a guy who just didn't fit into society and didn't make good decisions, um, but who redeemed himself. Uh, and the, you know. It was not that it was not as popular as Bone, so maybe, maybe this is maybe I'm back to where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like how different and original each one of these feels. Is there one of these? Speaking of like how characters are like a specific part of you, is there any character in Tuki that you feel like resonates with you more than the others? Like you feel like this is this is the character that most represents me on the page or the easiest to write or anything like that? Um, maybe not, maybe not quite yet. I mean, right now, obviously, Tukey mm-hmm. is the head of the star. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all, Doc, uh, his personality really, really kind of changed the fastest. Uh, I really did think he was going to be a bit more ominous for longer, but he immediately became a worrier and almost the, the mother figure of the group. Um, so, but I don't really, I don't really, I think right now, uh, with bone, I would have said it was phone bone, mm-hmm. uh, but now with Tukey, you know, I'm older now and, uh, I, I, right now I'm identifying with Tukey, but the kids also, uh, are the reason I stopped the, the webcomic because the kids suddenly brought in new elements and new personalities. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so I... I need to find out who they are. So I'm, I'm, I'm in, I, I'm, I'm probably still Tukey, but I'm, that may not stay that way. I like that a lot. Um, going back to that transition from webcomic to the graphic novel format we have now, you talked a little bit about wanting to introduce more smoothness into the story. Yeah. Um, how did you go about bringing that to pass from going from a collection of scenes to a smooth narrative that we have now? Well, I, it took a while. I mean, uh, I needed to really not, not think about the, the fact that I had artwork that I was trying to reuse, but just to go, what is this story? And really write it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then it was, I mean, it was generally the same story. So I was able to then see what art I had and see how I could repurpose it. So it was. I, I wrote a smooth story first, and then repurposed the artwork into it. I like that a lot. I think it does flow so well when oh, you're yeah. reading this story. It goes quickly. I remember I was. I had this struggle where I was reading it, where I wanted to keep up with the pace that the book had. That it just had me flipping pages, but I wanted to savor it as well. I felt like I kept flipping back and reliving these scenes, and so I. Mm-hmm. I do think you were successful in creating a smooth 
read across the well board. that's great thank you it's good to hear yeah um something else just looking at your process pictures i noticed there were a lot more gray tones in some of the older images that seem to have been pulled out in the final product what were i guess what was the thought process behind that of pulling some of those grays out of you're talking screen? about some of the screens yeah um well there wasn't really any screen work in the color okay but when i removed the color I had, I had relied on the color for some effects. So uh, it was just a, a, a solution. I mean, the first time I did it, I think I wanted to show them coming up. Uh, they were coming up over the hill and they had, Tuki had a couple of lit sticks and I wanted the trees to be in black, but the stars behind them. And so that was done in the comic. If I did it, I can't remember if I did it in the comic, but it was like, I originally planned it for the web comic. And it was going to be, you know, just navy blue with, with stars in it. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I needed, so that was just a solution. I'm not 100% sure it works perfectly, um, but it was an experiment. And I did it again in the second book when they get the night visitors, the three warriors show up to check them out. And I wanted Tuki's shadow to, to fall on them and, you know, and, and have them get a little freaked out. Uh, and then again, I used that same screen. Again, I'm not sure I'm going to use that again. That was an okay idea, but um, I, it does jar you a little bit. But it it was okay. It worked. I mean, you get you get what's supposed to be happening. Yeah. Do you tend to like working better in black and white? Like you've gone back and added color to Bone. The version of Razzle I read was in color. Um, do you prefer well, original, black and white though? Well, Bone was originally done, you know, over 12 years, serializing a little black and white comic. And then, you know, and I collected them in black and white, like nine black and white books, and eventually did the big one volume and one big thing. Mm-hmm. Well, right as I was getting ready to do the one big volume, or getting, or yeah, uh, Scholastic called, and they thought, well, let's. They didn't care if we did it in color or black and white, um, but we thought let's do some experiments because it would make it different if it was in color, and I think it's a, I think it's pretty good. Steve Hammaker did a wonderful job. Uh, he did, I would say he did a great job. And I know there are kids that would just look at the black and white and think, it's like looking at a, like a silent black and white film or something. They're like, what is, what is this? Mm-hmm. Um, but I really love the black and white. It, I, that's the one for me, the big fat paperback in black and white. That was my goal. And I like it now, but it's in both. So Scholastic mm-hmm. License to Color. And Vijay and I at Cartoon Books still publish the big black and white one. And you can have whichever one you want. I like the black and white. Rassel on, is different. I did Rassel in black and white originally. Uh, but when Steve Hammaker colored Rassel, he came up with a completely new color scheme that was rich and dark and smoky. And it just brought, it brought the story to life. I mean, it really took it to another level. So uh, unlike with Bone, where I wanted to keep the black and white around, my dog is playing the squeaky toys behind me. <laughs> you see it? Yes. Oh, oh there. Very cute. Um, uh, I, I didn't need the black and white anymore. So the color became, that became Rassel. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it's just so good. I don't need the black and white. Tuki was another story. We colored it because it was going to be on the web. And... We didn't have time to, when we did the Kickstarter, to get Tuki off the ground, 
there was no way we realized very quickly we were going to be able to get it. I was going to be able to get it drawn, and then we were going to be able to have time to get it colored. So we just said, well, let's just let's just do it the old-fashioned way. We'll originally do it in black and white, and we'll see if we want to do it in color. So that decision has not been made yet. I like I think that. It was pretty good in black and white. I'm not. I'm kind oh of yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's sharp. <laughs> Speaking of old-fashioned way, looking at the back of this book, it looks like you still do a lot of your drawing by hand. And I have to ask, what do you feel like as we get more and more into like a digital age? What do you think are some of the? Um, are there a lot of benefits to still doing um, a lot of your artwork um, manually on paper and pen first? Um, I think it's mostly my age. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, my, my generation was still using, you know, blue pencil and Bristol board and, and ink. Um, I mean, I, it, it's, it switched probably, I learned in the eighties really mm -hmm. to do the, to, to work with a brush. Um, and then whenever in the, it was in the two thousands, right. When, when really Cintiqs and things really came in. Well, Bone, I'd been doing Bone for 10 years by that point. So there was really no reason for me to change. I mean, I tried it a couple of times. All my you know, younger cartoonist friends were like, oh, come on, you got to try it. I, I tried it. Okay. It doesn't give me the tactile right. sense that I'm getting, the thrill I get at that junction point between my wet brush and the paper and moving that around on that's that that that's part of the zen for me so i don't see any reason to to do it different now i use technology i use that shit out of it because mm -hmm. uh, i draw the whole thing but then i showed a couple examples where i could save time and make a more i think believable uh, moment by putting like drawing one background or maybe two or three backgrounds and maybe using them over and over again um, and various plants that could be around just to keep it looking jungly. Um, I mean, if you saw it, if you saw my original pages, I mean, it, you, it's the same story, but mm -hmm. to be less jungle. So the, so the actual pages of Tuki are, uh, I guess they're NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I did. When I saw that you, we're dropping the plants in that way. I was like, that is so smart. <laughs> like that, well, that is we a were good way to very, do it. Very careful. I've always done that. For, even from the earliest issues of Bone, I would use a Xerox machine and do things. Uh, I never I never Xeroxed a character. Characters mm -hmm. always have to be brand new for that moment, for that instant of the, of the panel. But backgrounds and things, well, I, I did animation for years, so that, there's always the backgrounds are still. I was always sure I had one rule. You, if you read it and you notice that the background is the same, if that stops your eye from moving on to even think about it for a second, don't do it. Mm -hmm. So I was very careful to like play around with it and make it so it's not very noticeable. Yeah, I, I didn't notice until you called it out in the back. So I think you were <laughs> successful with that. Super, super sure. <laughs> Um, I guess my... I'm talking about me, by the way. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess my final question about Tuki uh, would be, what do you feel like you learned most about yourself and then maybe people in general through the process of making Tuki? Well, 
for me personally, it was a journey to see if I could go back and do what I did with Bone and Rassel again. It had been a while, and the webcomic I felt was 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 weak. It was not up to my standards, and I had a slight moment of, can I can I reach that again? Um, I think I did, and I am relieved <laughs> that I I got there. Um, so that was a that was a that was a learning and a learning experience for me. I also think thinking so much about the roots of our kind, mm-hmm. uh, it's really clear that all divisions of you know race or uh, culture are meaningless, are absolutely meaningless. We were all African. No one does not have African ancestry. We split out. Skin color changes as we, you know, have different needs of vitamin D for the sun. Up in Europe, it's cloudy. It's cold. You need white skin to suck in uh, that. You need less melanin. You know what I mean? So all of that that was a that was a profound learning experience or, you know, wake up call. I kind of already knew it, but this is just like, it's, you can't argue it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for my final question is, is that the, the main lesson you want people to take away when they read Tukey and looking forward, what, what are you most excited to see um, people learn about and see unfold in this book? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, we have deep roots in Africa and mm-hmm. we, it's it's good to know it's good to know real stuff, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I think the main thing is the same thing I always want. It's that people have to make decisions, they have to trust, they have to work together, um, and don't. I mean, I should say always, <laughs> always question authority. Yes. Even if it's not, even if it's a giant god head that towers over you. <laughs> Especially Listen. the giant godhead. Especially the giant godhead. I think, especially fighting a gigantopithecus as well. Yes. When I saw that, I was like, I know exactly what that is, and I love it. That, <laughs> that's like that's a that's for me right there. That was that was chef's kiss. Beautiful. <laughs> Perfect. Well, before we let you go, Jeff, is there anything you want to to say to our listeners? Anything you want to try and plug? Uh, no, I really appreciate you guys uh, spending the time talking to me about this. Yeah, we talked about everything I think about with this comic book. It was really, really fun. And I love your podcast. It's, it's great to listen to you guys. Thank you so Thank much. You. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on so much. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just I want to reiterate for the listeners, and then, but for you, Jeff, I loved this book. Mm-hmm. I, I think you were such a talented cartoonist and storyteller, and this is my favorite thing that you've done. Oh, I think you, <laughs> if you're wondering at all, if this shows that you still have it, I think you, you have it. And then some with oh, this project. Oh, thank you. Wow. That's very, very nice of you to say that. Yeah. Well, I, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. I hope you have a relaxed evening and we'll let you go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go have a cocktail right now. <laughs> oh, that sounds fantastic. Perfect. Thank all you right. guys. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you again. All right. Holy cow. What a conversation. That was so 
fun. <laughs> Such a fun guy. We hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we liked doing it because mm-hmm. highlight of my week I was talking to Jeff Smith. Oh yeah. Uh, wait, what? Hold on. We're, <laughs> we're hanging out this weekend. <laughs> I think you're very cool, but I think. Oh my gosh. Cooler. I see how it is. <laughs> um, the pain. What? What was your favorite thing from the interview that you're taking away? I, as someone who, but the, my favorite thing about stories about about comics, any any medium, is just the characters. I love so much how you bring a fictional person to life, and I loved Jeff's insight about how like every character he writes is just a little piece of him, like split apart. Like I hate making the reference, but like little Horcruxes, just like this is part of my personality. This is part of my personality. I like seeing um, characters that represent who the author is in some way. I think most characters do do that. And I think that's the characters that really click that feel the most realistic feel that way for a reason. And just getting to talk about that and what Jeff saw in his own characters. I thought that was so wonderful. It's great insight. I agree. I think for me, something that is really cool when you think about the comic books that were coming out at the same time as Bone, you've mm-hmm. got things like Spawn, you've got things like Rob Liefeld on X-Force. And when mm-hmm. I think about those creators, I do not think about them in 2022 getting sensitivity readers and turning to all the people that they know best to make sure that mm-hmm. they are telling a story that won't harm anyone else you know like sensitivity readers are something that's common in the comics industry with creators like al ewing or kieran gillen who are sort of like leading the way of this newer generation Mm -hmm. of writer but it was really nice for me to hear from jeff smith that it's something that was on his mind Mm -hmm. and it gave me hope that i don't know like growing up in utah you i was fed the line so many times like oh well you'll be you'll be conservative when you're older like yeah. you'll you'll come around to the right way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I just love talking to Jeff that that is absolutely not the case, right? Like mm-hmm. He is just as much of an empathetic, empathetic and loving person now as he was when he was making Bone. Mm-hmm. And every bit of that, I love when an author writes something in their story and when you meet the person, that's who they are. It doesn't feel like a fabrication. It feels like honest, sincere truth on the page. And that's probably the thing that I'm going to go away appreciating the most about Jeff Smith after this. Because just after talking to him and seeing what a genuine great person he is, it just makes Bone and Tukey feel so much more personal and real to me. Absolutely. So, dear listener, if you have not picked up the two volumes of Tukey, mm-hmm. I I really want to like put my stamp of approval on these. Oh, books. yeah. If you tend to like our suggestions, I would rate this up there with something like Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, or From Hell, or like these books that we praise and praise and praise mm-hmm. on here. I think Tukey is as good as those, and you can be right here at the beginning of it oh, yeah. as it unfolds. I will say, if you loved Bone, there is no reason I can see that you will not love Tukey just as much, if not more. It is everything you loved about that series, just in a different wrapper, 
just it looks a little different. The characters are new, but that's what's exciting and fresh about it. And you gotta check this out. I would say go out and buy. <laughs> I almost want to say don't go out and buy the two volumes right now because the covers he showed us, the special covers for volumes one and two um, coming soon, are just too beautiful. I need both of those and I'm never going to read them. I'm just going to put them up somewhere because that is the picture that I want on my wall. So I know that they were stretch goals on the Kickstarter that was mm-hmm. Tukey volume two. So I don't know if they're ever going to come to retail, but I imagine mm-hmm. when Tukey volume three comes out, they might be attached to Kickstarter again. Okay. But well, we will I, see. I'm going to boost the shit out of that. Cause you, I need all of you to help me make my dream a reality. Absolutely. With your help together, we can. So, yeah, if you enjoyed this chat that we had with Jeff, there should be right below us on the feed a chat that we had with the artist Doc Shaner about his work on Cap- the Cap- New ch- Captain Marvel. New champion <laughs> of Shazam. Shazam. There we go. Oh, can't believe you forgot. Oh, my gosh. I just want to say Mary Marvel. I want to yeah. say Mary Marvel 400 times. I don't want to say new champion of Shazam. <laughs> I want DC to say Mary Marvel 400 times, not just four, but very true. So go give that a listen. Mm -hmm. It's super fun talking to cartoonists. We tend to talk to a lot of writers and it's fun to talk to uh, the real creative forces behind these books. Okay, goodbye. Thank you, everyone. That's all I'm going to say about that. Bye. (laughs)